I want to say something about food. Uh, my wife Emma often says that food is my love language. I get excited at the prospect of eating something good. Uh, she's observed that I generally express my love for her more uh, when she's cooking a good meal. Now, I cannot imagine for a minute that that's true, even though she is a great cook. But I do have to keep telling her that's not why I married her. But I am thankful and food is one of the wonderful gifts of God that we have been given. I mean, just think of all the multitude of different flavors and tastes that there are around the world, you know? Food is not just fuel for our bodies, it's clearly been given to us to enjoy, so that when we eat and drink, we should do so to the glory of God. You know, food features a lot in the Bible. Just read the Bible with that in mind, looking for the, uh, the meals and the, the feasts that are mentioned, and it's everywhere. The Bible begins with food, with Adam and Eve uh, being provided with fruit to eat from, from every tree except one. And of course, it was their desire for one that ruined everything. But then the Bible ends with food when everything is put right again, and there is this great heavenly banquet in the renewed heavens and earth. And the turning point for this great reversal, this, this great redemption, is commemorated with another meal that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper. Now, this month, we've been looking at the story of Esther in the Old Testament. It's a story that also contains a great reversal that is celebrated with food. Esther and her people, the Jewish people who were living in the Persian Empire at that time, were facing annihilation. But by God's providence, she and her relative Mordecai were raised up through no merits of their own to deliver God's people. And at the end of the story, the tables have been turned because the Jewish people are given permission to defend themselves and they end up killing the enemies who would have otherwise slaughtered them. And on the next day, the day after their victory, it says this. It says they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. They celebrated with food. And then we're told this. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And there's the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. And then the story ends by explaining how their feast became known as Purim, the Feast of Purim. You know, feasts or banquets are uh, special occasions of eating and drinking, and they occur a lot in the story of Esther. In fact, the Hebrew word for banquet is used 20 times in this story, and only 24 times in the whole rest of the Old Testament. The story starts with a banquet that lasted 180 days, and is hosted by the great Persian king Xerxes in honor of himself. But the story ends with a banquet, the Feast of Purim, that's still being celebrated annually to this day. 
And so everyone who hears the story of Esther must surely conclude that all honour and glory belong to the greatest king of all, who is still ruling and reigning long after King Xerxes, who is the king of all creation, the king of all history, the king of all mankind. So next time you enjoy a good meal, eat and drink to his glory, raise your glass to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But of course we do so not because of what the Lord did for his people in the time of Esther, but because of what he's done for us, for you and I. Because this story is pointing us to something greater, isn't it? What is it pointing us to? Think about it. The Jewish people thought they were going to die. Their enemy had threatened them with destruction. They were facing death. But in an incredible turn of events, they were delivered from the, this terrible evil. As one commentator wrote, the day of death had come and gone and God's people were still alive. But can you see, that is a picture of all God's people. It's true for everyone who believes in Jesus because it was on the cross that Jesus turned the tables on our greatest enemy. You know, we were all facing destruction. We were all under the sentence of death. But on the cross, we see the greatest reversal of all when Jesus died in our place. He died for the sins of mankind and then he defeated death when he rose again. And if you are trusting in him today, that means you too can say the day of death has come and gone and I will live forevermore. Can you say that? You know, there was another time in history when God's people were being threatened with annihilation. And it was because of a terrible persecution ordered by uh, the Emperor of Rome. But listen to what the risen Lord Jesus said to encourage his church when he appeared to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. He said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do not be afraid, he said. You see, what are you afraid of? Cancer, some disaster, war, suffering, death. Listen, if Jesus has risen from the dead, you don't need to be afraid. You've got nothing to fear. It's going to be okay. Jesus conquered death so that everything is going to be okay in the end. We can rest in that. We can rejoice in that. You know, life might be hard. We might be threatened with suffering or death, but Jesus has overcome it all. The day of death has come and gone for all those who believe in him. And one day we will enter into an eternal rest. You know, it's significant uh, that the Feast of Purim uh, was held on the day after the Jewish victory. If you think about other holidays where victories are celebrated like a, a Cinco de Mayo in Mexico or a Bastille Day in France, uh, they're celebrating the actual day when a famous victory was won. But the Feast of Purim celebrates the day after when it says that they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Frederick Bush, who was a professor of Old Testament studies at Fuller Seminary, said this. He said, the festival does not celebrate victory in battle, and the joy prescribed is not malicious glee over the slaughter of their enemies. The festival commemorates, rather, the fact that they gained relief from their enemies and that life was transformed for them from sadness to joy, from mourning to holiday. 
It was celebrating the day of joyful rest after being delivered from a terrible evil that had threatened to extinguish them, uh, when the fear of death had passed and their enemies were no more. Now they could rest, which meant that they could enjoy life again. And so what did they do? They feasted. You see, that is a picture for all of God's people, for you and I, because there is an eternal rest that awaits us because of the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. One day when he returns, there will be rest. There'll be rest from all suffering and pain, rest from all evil and violence, rest from all hardship and injustice, rest from all sickness and sorrow. It will be an eternal rest. And what celebration and joy there's gonna be on that day. And guess what we'll be doing? Eating, right? There'll be a great feast because we will all sit down at the great eternal banquet that is promised to us in scripture and we will all feast in the presence of God himself. You see, heaven isn't just some consolation after we die. It's the restoration of all things, of the whole material, physical world. It's why at the very heart of it all is a banquet, a feast. It's not just some spiritual metaphor. No, there'll be real food, a great feast, where we will enjoy fellowship with God and with one another as we celebrate life and enjoy eating and drinking to the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah saw it hundreds of years before Christ was even born. This is what he prophesied in Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain, talking there about Mount Zion, the eternal city of God, he says, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the shroud that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. You know, this great feast is to celebrate God's victory over death, the removal of death from the earth. He says, the Lord has spoken. And in that day, they'll say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is the feast we have to look forward to. The Feast of Purim is just a shadow of that great feast. But there's something else I want you to take note of. The Feast of Purim is celebrated by just the Jewish people. But who does Isaiah say the eternal feast is for? Who's invited? Verse six says, the Lord Almighty will prepare a, a feast of rich food for all peoples, all peoples. All nationalities, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all walks of life, all peoples, right? They will all have fellowship with God and with one another at this great feast. And why? Because they could all say, we trusted in him. Can you say that? I trust in him. I trust in God's great salvation, that he sent his son Jesus to die in my place. He gave his life for me. He paid for all my wrongdoing so that I could live with him forever. Can you say that? If so, there is a seat at his table with your name on it. You are on the guest list. That's what Isaiah was prophesying. It's what Jesus made possible. At one time, it didn't seem very likely. 
You know, in the years before Jesus came, the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people had dropped off the guest list. The Jewish authorities and religious leaders made the entrance into God's kingdom a kind of very narrow and exclusive thing. Not only was it exclusively Jewish, but many said that the unclean couldn't even participate in this great messianic banquet. It's why they would never share a meal with the poor or the blind, the crippled or any sinner because they were all considered unclean outcasts. It was Jesus who put us all back on the guest list. Right? He came eating and drinking and handed out God's party invitations everywhere. And it infuriated the religious leaders. You know, in Luke 15, Jesus told three famous parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But at the beginning of the chapter, we're told why he told these stories. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jewish tax collectors were viewed as traitors by their people. They were outcasts. So were sinners, which was a kind of uh, catch-all term for those who lived immoral lives or uh, had questionable occupations, or even those who were diseased or disabled because it was believed to be a punishment for some great sin. The point is, no respectable Jew would have associated or eaten with such people. And so they were scandalized by Jesus's behavior. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, right? It was a huge deal because eating with people, especially in that culture, symbolized friendship and acceptance, unity. See, why would Jesus do that? He must be a sinner himself. He's a friend of sinners. That's what they called him. And it wasn't meant to be a compliment. But in uh, his three parables, Jesus explained why he would do such a thing. And he, he was explaining that he'd not come for the righteous. You know, those who thought that they were on the right side of God. No, he'd come for the sinners, for the lost. As he said later on in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he illustrated that with these three stories in Luke 15, in which something that was lost is found again. And in each story, when the lost are found, there's always a party, a great celebration. Or in the story of the lost son, it's a great feast. In fact, if you think about it, that whole story revolves around food. You know, the younger son squanders his inheritance, but it's only when there is a famine in the land that he recognizes his need, because now he's hungry, he's got no food. And it's only when he longs to share a meal with the unclean pigs that we realize just how lost he is, how far he has fallen. But he comes to his senses when he remembers that his father's hired hands had plenty of bread to eat while he was dying of hunger. So he resolved to go back to his father and to beg him to treat him as one of his hired hands. But as we know, the father was having none of it. He saw his son. He was filled with love and compassion for him. He ran, he embraced him, he kissed him. He said, bring the fatted calf. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. Can you see? The day of death for the son had come and gone. He was now alive with his father. And so what do they do? They have a feast. They eat together. 
You see, that's how it is for everyone who recognizes their need and turns to God. The celebrations and the feast in those parables mirrors the celebration and the eternal feast of heaven. And by eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was saying, come as you are, come as you are, right? You don't have to get cleaned up before you come. I'll make you clean. So come as you are. All are welcome. This is for all peoples. All you have to do is trust me. It's like he was handing out party invitations to the great banquet of heaven. He was doing what the religious leaders should have been doing. In fact, Jesus had already made that very clear in the previous chapter in Luke 14, uh, when he had been invited to have a meal with a number of those religious leaders at the house of a Pharisee. And this is what he said to his host. Uh, he said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back so that you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He was saying, you know, you and your religious friends, you have each other over for dinner. You, you spend time with each other in this kind of uh, mutual admiration society, but you are indifferent to those who are outside your circle, those who have need, because there's nothing in it for you. But if you will invite them to eat with you, if you will welcome them, show them friendship, then you'll be blessed because you'll be rewarded in heaven. In other words, you need to recognize that this life is not it. And then to drive the point home, he told them the parable of the great banquet. And it's a picture of God's invitation to that great eternal feast that Isaiah foresaw. He said, you know, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, but one by one, they made their excuses, right? They were just too busy with the things of life. People just living as if this world is all we have. And so the host of the banquet said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, into, into the highways and byways, he said, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, right? The very same outcasts that Jesus told the religious leaders to invite. He said, I want my house filled. You see, that is the heart of God. As John Piper wrote, he said, God intends for his house to be full and for his eternal food to be enjoyed. And that's why he sent his son Jesus into the highways and byways of this world to invite the outcasts, people like you and me. That's why we find him welcoming sinners and eating with them. He was giving them a foretaste of heaven because they were in the presence of the one who not only accepted them, but could make them clean, who would not only forgive them, but would give them a whole new life. It was a foretaste of his father's heavenly banquet where they would celebrate his victory over death, right? When their sorrow would turn to joy and their mourning into a holiday. That is what he promises to all who will trust in him. Are you trusting in him today? If so, then you need to understand that you are not just living for this life alone, right? This is not it. 
we have been sent into this world to go out into the streets and lanes of our cities, into the highways and byways, to invite other people to God's great banquet. Jesus said to his disciples, even as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That applies to every one of us. But what does that look like? Someone once said Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, uh, create programs or put on events. He ate meals. Or uh, listen to this PhD guy, uh, Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus. He says, if I can pull down books on mission and church planting from my shelves, I can read about contextualization, evangelism matrices, uh, postmodern apologetics and cultural hermeneutics. I can look at diagrams that tell me how people can be converted or discover the steps required to plant a church. He says it all sounds impressive, cutting edge and sophisticated, but this is how Luke describes Jesus' mission strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I think I can do that. What about you? The question is, who are we spending all our time eating and drinking with? You see, what Jesus said to those religious leaders is for us as well. Our table fellowship is not meant to be just kept to this small circle of friends because the Father wants his house to be full. Can I encourage us all? If we know that we have a seat at that great banquet, not because of anything that we've done to deserve it, but because of everything that Jesus has done on our behalf, then let us also take the initiative to extend friendship to people we might never have associated with if it wasn't for Jesus. Let's welcome them to our table and eat with them. And what about those people we committed to pray for at Easter? You know, for those of you who are there, can I just encourage you to keep on praying for them? But what about also having a meal with them? There are so many people who are lonely and isolated. Listen to what Tim Chester says happens when we, like Jesus, share a meal with the marginalized. Uh, he said there, the marginalized cease to be marginal when they're included around a meal table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The alien ceases to be alien. Strangers become friends. So whether we do that as individuals or families or small groups or congregations, Let's share more meals. It's biblical and it's a sign pointing to that eternal feast in God's new world. It's by eating together that we can offer friendship and acceptance. It's where we will find opportunity to share the hope that we have. It's how we celebrate life to the glory of God. May food become the love language for every one of us, uh, but not just for ourselves. It's for the sake of others. So may God bless you and make you a blessing as you now go and eat.